0: You're listening to The Local Maximum, episode number 60. Time to expand your perspective. Welcome to The Local Maximum. Now, here's your host, Max Klar. We are on fire here on The Local Maximum. Highest day for a single episode with our discussion of internet in Cuba and Bitcoin in Venezuela last week. And now we hit episode 60 and also 20,000 downloads all in the same week. And so that's a lot of big things. And to add to that today, I have a huge guest. It's Brooklyn. It's a huge guest. This is Hillary Mason, general manager of machine learning at Cloudera Fast Forward Labs. I know that folks tune into this show for a variety of reasons, but one of them is getting a pulse on machine learning and AI, and that's going to be checked off today, no question about it. Some of you are on here because you want advice in your own careers, whether it's related to the topics we go in today or not. Again, we're going to check that off. We're going to talk about the process of research, brainstorming, breaking into an industry, communication, ethics, empathy, you name it. So I personally learned a ton in this interview, and this is a seminal episode where I'll go back and listen again in like a year, and I'll say, okay, which of these bullet points have I yet to take action on? So in 40 minutes... You're going to be smarter than you are right now. Prepare yourself. Now, Hillary Mason is again the general manager for machine learning at Cloudera. Previously, she founded Fast Forward Labs, an applied machine learning research and advisory company, which was acquired by Cloudera in 2017. Formerly, she co-founded HackNY.org, a Nonprofit that helps engineering students find opportunities in New York's creative technical economy served on Mayor Bloomberg's technology advisory council and was the chief data scientist at Bitly. Hillary Mason, welcome to the show. Thank you. Welcome to the local maximum.
1: Nice to be here.
0: Yeah, it's really good to be here in uh, Fast Forward Labs. Very cool. Very cool space you got here down in uh, Brooklyn, like literally three blocks from where I live. So it's very easy to get over (laughs) here this morning.
1: Well, we like to consider this our nerd garage. Um, We really like the unfinished aspects of this space.
0: So tell me about, I know I'm going right off script right away, but like each of these, you have a different probability. I love this. You have a different probability distribution for each room. That was, I wanted them to do, when Foursquare moved to a new spot, I wanted them to do something like that. That was not going to happen. <laughs> but but, but uh, how many uh, probability distribution rooms do you have?
1: Well, we have three, actually. But w- the reason that happened is that, you know, we were an independent company, Fast Forward Labs, for almost five years, and we didn't really need to name our conference rooms. So we had sort of the big one, the middle one, and the other one. Yeah. Um, but then we were acquired by Cloudera about a year and a half ago, and we now have people globally who can book these conference rooms. Oh. And so we had to have proper names. Yeah. And there's already a New York office that took all the New York landmarks and all the good names. Um, and so internally we had a vote, and it came down to whether we wanted to name our rooms about our favorite Brooklyn foods – so we might have okay. been sitting in Bagel.
0: I'd be good at that.:
1: Yeah, or our favorite distributions, and then we had a really lovely argument over a couple of days over which our favorite distributions were. and here we are in Poisson. So I think Poisson, we, uh, I
0: like that one. We
1: ended up pretty well.:
0: Yeah, that's I, I would have trouble getting it down to just three. That's um,
1: there were uh, spreadsheets yeah. involved.
0: Did you have a, or is at least one of them discrete, or are they all continuous?
1: No, we have.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Serious question, very important.
1: Yes, we have binomial, Gaussian, um, and okay. then we have a whole list in case we create additional conference rooms in the future.
0: Okay, very cool. Okay, so you've been you've had this for five years. Congratulations on starting this up, leading it through five years of work, and then and then uh, exiting and selling it to. Claudera, very very um very great. I mean <laughs> the very amazing thing. Fun. Yeah. Yeah. Um so you guys do really deep dives into the latest trends in machine learning. So how do you decide what to focus on each quarter?
1: Yeah, this is actually a really good question. Um, So when I started Fast Forward Labs, the goal was to create sort of a new way of doing applied machine learning research that took some of the best things about academic research and the best things about actually building machine learning products and brought them together. And the risk, of course, is that as the founder of a startup, what we worked on would just be whatever Hillary thinks is a good idea this week. Yeah. Um, but I, I That doesn't sound so
0: bad, but... <laughs> no, I mean,
1: I, I think I have pretty good taste, in, in, uh, but that's just yeah. you know, my own opinion. But I was trying to build an organization with a repeatable process that could actually be measured.
0: Right. It's forward and, thinking. If I'm not here, I want it to still work.
1: Well, right. And can this grow beyond me? And could we eventually do research in other domains as well, using a similar process? And so the process we use, and I'll try and keep it um, short, is it's one of the most fun things we get to do even today. And it more or less goes like this. The first step is to find ideas. And so we're continuously looking for, you know, an interesting paper. Somebody did a cool hack. There's a random blog post. An artist did something using a technique that we thought was really cool. Um, you know, try and be as playful as possible and then also drink a ton of coffee. We get everyone in the room. We put up some virtual whiteboards and we just sort of come up with as many bad ideas as we can. And I'm a huge fan of bad ideas. Um, I mean, we've had things like self-driving bicycles on our list, you know, things that are not practical um, because it frees you up to have more experimental good ideas and often good ideas come out of bad ideas. So that's, then we get to a really long list. Then we go through a process of refining that list against a set of uh, somewhat quantitative and qualitative criteria. So for each idea on the list, we look at, is it more possible this year than it was a year ago? Um, And do we believe there will be continuing progress that makes it even more possible and useful a year from now? Is there active academic research that's relevant, either directly in our domain or in an adjacent field that we could imagine being applied here? Are there economic constraints that are changing? So, for example, certain deep learning techniques, when we wanted to look at them four years ago, we couldn't afford the GPUs. Um, and so we said, okay, you know, we're not going to do this today, but but, are there economics that are changing that makes something more affordable and tractable? Um, we look for commoditization in the space. So are people building open source libraries around it? Or, you know, are there becoming standard approaches to using these techniques? And we look for data being available that lets us address these problems. So one of the things about not being a product company like Foursquare is that we don't have our own native data sets. So we either partner um, or otherwise acquire data for our work. And then the last thing we look for is what will actually be useful to people building machine learning products and systems in production in six months to two years. So do we think somebody could reasonably use this technique to actually uh, address a real problem? And once we go through all that, we end up with probably around a dozen candidates in any given cycle. And then the person or people leading that particular research effort We'll go through a, what we call a literature review, which is really just Googling and looking around, um... They'll, you know, rank that list, and then they'll actually go try and find some data and write some code, um, take a couple of weeks and figure out, you know, what do we think is actually going to work? Um, and then they they get it down to a few ideas, have a few more discussions, and make a final decision. So the final decision is always made by the person who will actually be doing the bulk of the work over the next six months, too. Uh, and that's and so, important. So
0: what is the bulk of the work?
1: Uh, So here we – on our team, we have a bunch of folks who spend about half their time doing this kind of research, so things that we select and work on, and then also the other half of their time advising and working with our customers.
0: Right. So you try to find something – I assume you try to find something that's like within your – Wheelhouse? I'm like, that's a new word. I haven't it. It is, so,
1: though. You know, uh, one of the, <laughs> the things I love about this yeah. work is that we have pretty broad interests and You're we also interests. have pretty broad backgrounds yeah. on our team. So,
0: so for example, like self driving bicycles. Again, I, I love this because it's like it just frees you up to come up with a good idea. <laughs> yeah. So, you would say, okay, last year, uh, is there anything that's changed between this year and next year? And you might be like, okay, well, all of this sensor data from self-driving cars that's right might and be image applicable. processing yeah. real-time
1: video analysis
0: and, um, and you might look at some other things like well there's the ri- the rise of bike shares and there is maybe you know, more bike lanes here in the city, or something like that, like uh, other economic tra- trends that's not right. just related. And, to- and
1: you just reminded me, yeah. we also really try and frame our work around capabilities, not around algorithms. So, hmm. so much of uh, CS machine learning research is focused on, you know, a slightly novel approach to, you know, some particular algorithm. Yeah. And that's not that doesn't tie itself to what you can actually do with it. So we really try and frame our work around capabilities and then back into the algorithms that are relevant and look for the relevant research there.
0: Yeah. I think I did a show way back or this, so this is episode 60 by the way. And, and I kind of <laughs> for number. some reason I'm very excited about getting to 60. For some reason I feel like it's big it's like a bigger flip than fifty. I don't know why that is. Well Maybe it is it's technically
1: because... a bigger number than fifty. No, no, no. But, but, like, a, but like
0: but like a bigger <laughs> milestone. I don't know. Anyway, yes. so all the links you want to send me are going to go to localmaxradio.com/slash sixty. Um, so but I I did want to ask about I, I I was just gonna say way back, I think in episode eight, we did a whole we had a discussion about bad ideas. So I'll link to that. I don't, I don't remember what that was. I think that was in in relation of trying to come up with like chatbot ideas or something like that. Um, so I I guess the next thing I was going to ask you is, Uh, Tips on running a successful brainstorming meeting, but you already told me about uh, the meeting that you run, but if there may be anything else.
1: Uh, Well, I would say emphasize the bad ideas, give people the freedom to have as many of them as possible, and then also make sure that the quiet people have a structured space to speak. Okay. So uh, on most teams I've worked with, you have some people who talk a lot and some people who don't speak that much, but sometimes everything they say is brilliant and you wish they'd say a little bit more. Um, And so just make sure that you have mechanisms for getting broad participation where, uh, you know, you want to extract the best from everybody.
0: That's a good idea. I I find that brainstorming meetings are often an overlooked part of – product development and i realize you're not doing product development but it but same idea where it's you know it really helps you explore the explore the space and when you're done you really feel like you've explored the space whereas if you don't do a brainstorming meeting you feel like what are the ideas of the people i'm working with i don't know and am i working on something where i could be working on something else i don't know but once you've held that meeting I don't know. I find I feel better about it. And I feel like every time I hold a brainstorm meeting like at work or whatever, it's a team building exercise as well. That's
1: right. Yeah, I think it's important also to create spaces in our work that even if we have to focus on a particular problem or objectives, and we already know what that is, you want to create space for creativity and also to see where different people's creative ideas sort of collide. Um, So it's both that human team building thing, and then it also may lead to a better solution.
0: Yeah, yeah. Okay, so let's dive right into machine learning and data science, shall we? Sounds like So fun. Yeah, what are the biggest mistakes that people make when they apply machine learning to real-world problems?
1: So there are many failure modes we see, um, so I'll try and restrict myself to a few. Yeah. Um, I think the um, – well – The first one I'd say is that people often focus on novelty or complexity of technique over utility of the system built – And so I'm a huge believer in that you should build the simplest possible thing that will suffice um, at the level of accuracy and with the constraints of whatever product or downstream system you're building this into. Yeah. And simple is easier to maintain, easier to understand. There are lots of advantages. And then if you build something simple and it turns out it's not sufficient, you can then invest in a more complex solution and you at least have something reasonable to compare it with.
0: You know, that one always sounds obvious, but it really took me years to not do that <laughs> not get into these rabbit holes.
1: Well, it's not obvious yeah. because in our culture of machine learning, we really prioritize novelty of technique. Um we don't really, you know, prioritize uh, success of system output or efficiency.
0: Right, right. Um, it has to be something no one's ever done before or I mean no matter what you're building, it's always something no one's ever done before. But it's like, it, like you said, novelty of technique, like it has to be done in a very different way.
1: Well, that and then I think this also happens because a lot of folks doing the work of machine learning think that the hard part of their job is the algorithm design, and then they want to make that hard and interesting. And often the people managing them don't really understand what they're doing or know how to manage them. well. <laughs> That's an issue, There's too. There's a whole nother yeah. layer of that. Um And so that's one – that's probably the top one. The other one I'd look at is – or I'd say is not considering the product or the system where the output of the machine learning piece will be used in the original design of the algorithm um, or of the approach you're going to take. And I say that because I have seen – um, situations where, you know, for example, somebody might have created a classifier that takes an hour to produce an output, but the actual product requires one in seconds. Okay. And then they hand it over the wall to their data engineer and say, okay, I made it. Now you make it fast. Yeah. Um, now that's not going to work. We all know that.
0: Yeah. So we make it fast.
1: <laughs> yes. Um, or rather that... Or change the
0: algorithm. That the, yeah.
1: the entire machine learning workflow has to take that eventual product... Um, manifestation, whatever it is, right. into account Right. Uh, as you're designing the approach you're going to take. Um, and I think that, and, you know, at Cloudera, we work with a lot of enterprise customers with very large, complex organizations, and it's often seen as someone else's job to handle the deployment. Um, but I don't think you can do a good job at, at your work if you don't keep that in mind. Um, and then the last one I'll add is sort of uh, just underestimating the amount of work And the creativity that goes into data cleaning and, you know, managing a robust data ingestion process.
0: So you have developed a data ethics checklist. Um, Do you have any – can you tell me a little bit about the checklist and do you have any examples of a time it's made someone rethink a project?
1: (laughs) So I have anecdotal examples, but okay. most people don't want to get up in public and say, "Here is where I, I was really... about to do something
0: really bad." Exactly, but or Hillary I did something from... really bad, and <laughs> then, then I, I was
1: able to mitigate it. Yeah. Um, so this is one where it's actually been a huge challenge to get people going on the record talking about what has gone wrong. And so, yeah. um, Ed Felton, who's a professor at Princeton, has actually done a ton of work. It's to... it's
0: really tough to do. It just comes to mind here, like when you're working for a company like you can't go on the uh, you can't go out in public and start saying oh we were about to do this we were about to do that i mean i mean <laughs> yep. sometimes the company's okay with it but you really have to be careful you have to like go to all their you have to, you know you, you can't just start you can't just start blurting things out
1: Right. Or, you know, say, hey, we violated our customers' expectations of privacy and then then figured out. But let me tell you where the checklist idea came from. So that came out of a short ebook, which is free and is on Amazon, uh, called Data and Ethics that I co-authored with Mike Lukides, who works at O'Reilly and DJ Patil, who's currently at Devoted Health, but also worked for President Obama as the chief data scientist. Okay,
0: so we'll link to that.
1: Okay, great. Um, But the reason we have a checklist in this book is that um, basically we found topics where DJ and Mike and I did not agree, things we were arguing about, and then we tried to figure out why we didn't agree and what we thought a reasonable approach might be. And this one came out of the idea of uh, an ethical oath for data scientists, which I have never felt is an ideal approach. I don't really mind the idea, but I do think it distracts from tools that actually help people make better decisions in their day-to-day work. Um, Because who is really going to say, oh, yeah, you know, you take an oath once and then you're doing something and you think, of course, I'm ethical. I took that oath, didn't I? Like, I'm just going to write whatever code I want. So we were really trying to think about for the people who are currently underserved by the, the sort of ethics critical community, which is the practitioners, you know, the people with hands on keyboard writing code. What is a tool or a workflow that those people can think about, customize, and then build into their own process to help them really do better work? And so that's where the idea of using checklists came from. Lots of people have proposed this before. Um, What the checklist says is really up to you in the specific domain and the concerns you might have. Um, But we just really wanted to say, hey, that we think this is a reasonable idea. It's something you'll think about every time you're doing a project. It's not just a one and done kind of thing. And it's a tool that can sort of help you in your day-to-day workflow at least think about the ethical implications of what you're doing, if not actually change them.
0: Can you give an example of a time where you had a disagreement over what – over what the data ethics should be?
1: Sure. So one from my own career is that uh, many years ago, I used to be the chief scientist at a uh, social media analytics firm. And this was, was that
0: Bitly or was that something else? It was, okay. but I was going to leave oh, that out. Okay, I'll, okay. Uh, I'll take that out. You don't
1: have to. <laughs> um, I think it's pretty easy to figure out. Yeah. So we had on our leadership team a, a bit of uh, a debate over whether we should sell the cookie data to advertisers for ad targeting. And I thought this was not a good idea. And this, of course, was my opinion for two reasons. One is that uh, most people didn't know the data was being collected when they clicked through that link and it would in my opinion, violate their expectations of privacy. The second is that it actually I didn't think would be very good at ad targeting because if you think about it, the set of things you click on off of Facebook or Twitter or, you know, your email um, really don't reflect whether you want to buy a car. Right. Um, Like those are the things your friends are sharing with you or news stories for the most part. They don't – Well, what if
0: it's like – I bought a car. You should buy a car too. Well, oh, maybe, quick.
1: but how yeah. often do you think that happens?
0: Probably not too often.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's uh, there are way better data sources for yeah. understanding people's intent to purchase, um, and so this is one where we had inside the company like quite a, a strong disagreement about whether we should use the data in this way or not. And I have to say, on both, like I can see both sides of this argument. I don't think there was a clear right or wrong answer.
0: I think that um, data scientists and and engineers often underestimate what their power is to push back on some of these things or to ask questions on some of these things. Because oftentimes, it's not like the company is going to clear them all out and get a whole new team. Uh, You can't really do that very quickly.
1: That's true. I think that, uh, you know, folks, first, if you're writing the code, you can just not write the code. And then the second thing is that you actually have a fair bit of power just from you know, being an employee and being present in some of these discussions.
0: Sure, sure. Okay, so uh, you've been, this is a very long one, data ethics checklist, that's been around for probably three, four years we've been talking about this. This next question we've been talking about for literally like over a decade, and I've been talking about it on the show (laughs) because you've been educating people and organizations about like what is a data scientist for many years now. And don't get me wrong, I think you've been successful at that. But as I've covered recently on this show – you know, companies still can't agree, and they still have completely different jobs posted right. under the same title. Why is this the case? <laughs> why are we not able to say like, um, uh, why can't why can't we just have like normal um, job titles like everyone else? <laughs> <laughs> when you just say because this, is what I do. Because we have a bunch yeah. of
1: conflicting forces that are going on here all at once. So. One of them is sort of the, the change in technical capability that allows data scientists to even be one job. So people yeah. have been doing what data scientists do for a really long time. It's just now we can do it in one professional role. And by that, I mean the mathematics, the so linear algebra, statistics, the programming skill, and then also the sort of data domain, business knowledge, communication, human empathy, all of the, the sort of non-technical work of a good data scientist. All of this can be one person. 30 years ago, it couldn't. Now, that said, there's a bunch of different flavors of the work that data scientists do. And I think if we look ahead 10 years or so um, and we use something like software engineering as a model, if you're a software engineer at one company and you move to another one, more or less your job description is kind of the same and the processes you use for your workflow are the same and the tools you use are more or less the same. And you're managed in the same way and you sit in the same place in the organization and you have similar career paths no well, matter which company you're at.
0: Not necessarily, right? I mean, you. so you're going to be working with like different languages and different... Um, uh, different tech stacks. And then some companies have, well, you're reporting to another engineer and some companies have, well, usually you're, you're reporting to the engineering structure at this point, yep. but yeah, there are some companies where it's like, oh, the, we only have two engineers here. Um, well, so
1: that, sure. And, and certainly yeah. they're different in a startup where you might have to do everything and, yeah. and it is in a large company environment, but there's a lot more stability in the engineering side of the world than there is in the data science side of yeah, the world. Yeah, yeah, I think
0: that's the main point. That's well, what exactly.
1: I mean. So where yeah. you sit in the org is different, how you're managed is different, what your job is is different, your workflows are different. And some of these things um, – we just haven't converged on a way to do this, and some of it also speaks to the fact that data scientists contribute so much. So we can be useful in a you know, finance and operations organization doing uh, reporting and BI. We can be useful in product, building features of a product. We can be useful in R&D, creating new products, new businesses. Um, And even more than that. Uh, So um, I think that we will see these titles and workflows converge over the next few years. Um, Maybe it'll take 10 years. I'm not going to make a bet on the timing. Um, But I think It's it's just
0: taking a long time.
1: Right. And that's (laughs) why we have this variability today. And then you add on top of it the, uh, you know, coolness of AI and machine learning versus data scientists
0: and it changes so much. Like AI, three years ago, whenever someone asked me about AI, it was always chatbots. And I worked on a chatbot, <laughs> even, even if they didn't know that. And so it's always, it, it, people always, you know, when you're talking about it, on podcasts or on the radio or whatever, every few years I feel like it's a refresh of what people think of in their mind when they yep. think of AI.
1: Well, the joke, of course, is that AI is whatever computers can't do today.
0: Right, right. So still, still chatbots. <laughs> uh, <apparently. laughs> that is true. <laughs> um, so this is um, this is not on the list, but I did want to ask this question. You do a lot of um, you do a lot of public speaking on uh, on these topics. You go to a lot of uh, I- events and. Conferences. What are what are some of the techniques you use to like give a good talk on?
1: on <laughs> oh my talks? gosh, this could be an hour on it itself. Yeah. Um, so I am a student of giving good talks um, and have a few. I, the people
0: want to know. Trust me. Few, that's why I'm asking. Yeah, a few <laughs> things
1: that I've developed that are tools yeah. that I use. So. Um, whenever I'm preparing for a talk, I always ask two questions and I did in fact ask you these questions this morning. Yeah. One of whom is, one of them is who is in the audience, um, and you know, sort of, what do they already know? What are they curious about? Um, you know, how should we frame different ideas for them? And you know, in this space, it's really—is this a highly technical audience that really wants to talk about? They want to see equations, or is this you know a heterogeneous audience where we should keep things at a conceptual level? And then the second question is, what does a win look like to the people organizing the event or or the you know the show? Um, and that's something that uh, will really help you calibrate what you're trying to get people to walk away from the talk with. The other tricks I use are to try and write, keep in mind that the, the naive thing that people do, and certainly I came from an academic background, so I thought my job when I started, started teaching was to take a body of knowledge I have in my head and then get it into everyone else's head. That will never work right the the best you can hope for is that people walk away with a couple of bullet point or tweet type ideas from your talk And so then with that in mind, think about a narrative that's compelling, that has a natural flow, where if someone tunes out for two minutes, they can tune back in and actually understand what's going on. Make sure you repeat ideas. So if I am giving a technical talk, I'll say whatever I'm talking about at a technical level. Then I'll repeat it in plain English. And then I'll give the really short, sweet, like you can go to Twitter and say this version. Um, like all in a row, and I don't feel bad about repeating myself. People really tend to appreciate hearing things uh, in different frames, um, so they have an opportunity to really, you know, think about it as we go. I also think you should have fun. So one of the real advantages of giving talks in industry. Is that, you know, uh, we can actually tell good stories. We can have a good time. And if you're not having a good time giving your talk, uh, nobody is going to have a good time listening to you. So my talks are full of jokes to myself you know, obscure pop culture references, things from my favorite sci-fi novels. And once in a while, somebody will get it uh, and, you know, come up to me and be like, oh, I totally thought that was great. Or yeah. why why but is this in here? I,
0: I find those things are good. Um, well, in moderation, like even if even if, even if you don't get it, like people will be like, oh, this person has uh, some quirky things in their life that That's I should right. look into.
1: Yeah, and then the last they're like, thing- They're, they're not just
0: some robot appearing backstage. <laughs> The last
1: thing I'll add is that you should not be afraid to be yourself and have a personality and be clear about what you like and what excites you. And don't be ashamed of being excited by something. And then also, just keep in mind that your audience is not you. So when you talk about your work, you want to keep it as broad and accessible to as many different kinds of people as might be in that room as you can.
0: I think that's all very good advice. I think I'm going to put that in a checklist. It's really... (laughs) Um, sometimes it's, it's frustrating to me how many talks, how many technical talks I go to that are just not, um, um, ah, God, they'll take a field that I think is really exciting and then they make it boring and I get so mad.
1: (laughs) Well, and also don't run over time. Have lots of links to other resources, but be respectful of people. Oh yeah,
0: yeah. That's a good one. All right. So I sometimes get questions from like, uh, you know, college students and people who are changing careers about how to be a machine learning engineer how to be a data scientist and i kind of think my answers are okay but they need a lot of perspective especially since things are so much different than they were over the last 10 years Mm -hmm. i I think the way i did it was maybe not is not usual or maybe not possible Mm now um it's all partially but um (laughs) anyway i've I've gone over my story here (laughs) enough times so what's your advice
1: Yeah, it it always is funny when people ask me, how did you end up doing what you're doing? Because I want to copy that. And I have to be like, you cannot and you should not. Like the set of conditions that existed for me at that time do not exist today. And also, uh, it was not a clear path. It still isn't. I don't think I know what I want to do when I grow up. But my own existential issues aside...
0: Yeah, you got to get out there and do something already. Come on.
1: (laughs) I mean, I get these kinds of questions all the time as well. And in fact, this is so not clear that there are whole industries that have sprung up to provide on ramps into data science. There are multiple companies that exist just to do this.
0: Yeah. And there's been a few articles out about how like, well, there's a lot of like junior data scientists out there. And that's becoming very... like way too competitive. Whereas I look around and I look for the kind of like companies looking for senior data scientists. And it's like, they can't find anyone. Mm -hmm. So it's like, how do you, how do you break in in that environment?
1: Yeah, it it is a challenging one. But um, the way I like to think about this is that fundamentally, the set of skills are what we've already discussed. So it's math, it's code, and it's human empathy. It's being able to, you know, talk to somebody who has a product problem or a business problem to go away, figure out an analysis or a system you can build that actually can solve their problem, and then go back to them and explain what you did in plain language that they can understand. So they make better decisions. And I think we tend to underestimate the importance of that sort of Mm. empathy communication skill and also just creativity. So being able to connect this amorphous business need to the set of techniques and data you have available is a skill that is very hard to teach and hard to find. Now, that said, how do you break into the industry? Well, you have to have a body of work showing you have the skill and you can get that in a bunch of different ways. So the really tactical thing I always encourage people to do is to find a way to do a project that highlights their strengths amongst those three things and then pick one that will be a learning project that really helps them develop in the area they're weaker in um, and then use that as a showcase uh, for the kinds of work they'd like to be doing. And now I realize that a lot of people don't have the spare time to do this. Um, It's hard to get you know, people to look at you if you don't have years of experience on your resume. So there really is a bit of a scramble to try and find a way to do this. But I I don't see a way to get the job without having done at least a little bit of the work, whether you're fortunate enough to be able to do it in school or an internship, uh, or you have to try and do it, you know, on the side or as part of an existing project you're doing, sort of throw that in as the icing on the cake. Um, It can be really challenging, but that's, uh, that's generally the way I think about it.
0: Yeah, I think and I'm not I'm asking this I don't know if there's a very good answer. Uh but I think one thing people might think well how do I build the skill of you know having empathy for for product developers or, or how do I, you know, build that communication skill? It's not okay. something that well, can Well, I've be got short... an answer to this, right? Okay. Because
1: um, one of the interview questions I like to ask is, you know, you've spent some time with us, you see what we do. Yeah. What are all the ideas you have um, for things that we, you're surprised we're not thinking about or doing? And I've asked this question when I've worked at product companies, we use it here today, Um, And this is just an exercise you can go through. And it's something I like to do when I visit people at different companies or have coffee with them where I just sort of think about their product and their business and try and think about, oh, if I had all that data and I could do whatever I wanted, you know, sort of what am I – what do I think they should be doing that I don't see them thinking about? Um, And that's just a really fun thought experiment and also really good if you've got a commute. You can play that game with yourself. Yeah. Um, and it puts you in the habit of thinking creatively about what those opportunities are and doing it quickly.
0: I think also from, from, from what you mentioned, turning that around and asking other people the questions and getting their perspectives. Um, right. Oh, just I have thinking. another thought on this, yeah.
1: by the way, which is that uh, this one is for people hiring data scientists. I find right. people hire off a rigid resume profile yeah. that is way too rigid. So for folks who say, oh, I can't hire anyone who's any good, I think you're looking too narrowly, probably for a given set of schools and a specific set of skills, when really you want to find people who have this creative ability to think and a demonstrated ability to write code and do math. Yeah. Um, and so you should generally broaden your filter for what you're looking for. And that's an approach that we've used quite successfully here. We have folks on our team with PhDs in neuroscience and physics and areas that are not necessarily strictly – they would not come up in a resume search for data science.
0: Did you have to change your – or I'm sure you had to think about, like, how am I going to interview these people you know, oh, I to have, make sure? Oh, I have – I could give you yeah. three
1: hours on interviewing.
0: Well, we won't do three hours, but maybe, maybe the, the three-sentence explanation. Okay,
1: the three-sentence explanation is um, really that we identify the key areas where we look for this person to be able to work well. And so this might be things like uh, mathematical, technical skill, it might be programming, it might be sort of uh, creativity domain knowledge. We have a set of questions for each of these areas that our interviewers should be able to answer about the candidate after the interview. And then for each interview, We actually do it in pairs. So we get multiple interviewers with their perspectives in the room. And this is a a process that I've been designing over years to try and first avoid implicit biases as much as possible. And then also focus each discussion on one of the themes of the job. So when you're in this interview process, your job is to assess their uh, you know, ability to take a business question and come up with a technical answer, or your job is to assess their technical machine learning background. Um, and then at the end of this, we sort of get everyone's feedback independently and then have a, a structured discussion where we sort of talk about the things that were great about that candidate, the areas where we thought they might not be a fit, and how we want to proceed. Just the quick version.
0: Okay, great. So let's go on. This is my my last question, my favorite question. <laughs> if you could get complete support for any project in the machine learning AI space to build over the next few years, like, on, well, we're, I'm not saying like unlimited budget, but maybe you got, like a, you got like a substantial team and you could do whatever you want. Uh, what would you want to build?
1: Okay, so I'm going to give you three answers to this. Oh, well, um, yeah, it
0: couldn't just be one.
1: Yeah, well, uh, there, my problem is always I have too many things I would love to yeah. do. Um, Okay, the first one is going to be what we're actually doing here at Cloudera, which is that we are trying to discover the end-to-end ML data science workflows that data scientists in corporate environments are using and build software platforms that support that. And this means solving problems like how do you get something into production? How do you monitor it when it's in production? How do you detect drift? How do you alert? How do you update these things? When you have 10,000 models in production, how do you search them?
0: Oh, yeah. So So basically, instead of having a zillion tools, like just one tool.
1: Yes. So one platform um, that you can actually use effectively to do this work scaled throughout an organization. um, And that's what we're working on now. So I'm pretty excited about that. Um, And I do actually have a substantial team working on that. So even better. So you've done it. Yeah. Well, no, we're doing (laughs) it.
0: Well, yes. But but you've gotten to the point where... You're executing on one of these big idea projects, yes. which so is the, awesome.
1: I, yeah, I love it. Um, the other two are things we are not doing, but that I personally would be doing if I were not doing number one. Um, number two is that I want to build essentially Instagram filters for text transformation. So I want to be able to write a page of text and then select the angry button, the happy button, the Hmm. like get shit done button. I feel like we are right on the edge of making this possible. And I really want that.
0: So in other words, it would just change my tone.
1: Exactly. A voice,
0: not a voice, but of, of, uh, you know, the, the voice coming out through the written word. Yes. And, uh, can I be like, oh, I just wrote an essay, but now change this essay to use the like vocabulary that Hillary uses. So it looks like Hillary wrote that essay. And
1: then, well, uh, I wasn't going into the the sort of, you know, misinformation aspects of this, but maybe I would understand it easier if you could then write the email, but then use my own language Hmm. to explain it to me. I think there are a lot of really fun things that might come out of this, even things like, you know, taking, you know, a, a legal terms of service and getting it automatically in plain English. And this is not quite possible yet, but I think we're getting there. So here's one. The second one is that I am quite worried about adversarial ML attacks from an InfoSec point of view. So we have lots of companies with models in production doing all kinds of important things like fraud detection, security, spam detection, uh, I think there is likely um, there are likely people experimenting with how to you know insert training data into that workflow such that they can corrupt the classification output. And I don't see anyone out there really creating robust mitigation techniques. So if I were going to start a company tomorrow, it might be that.
0: So it would be like I'm trying to th- uh, think of an example of what you're worried about like if I'm trying to train for spam. You're saying they're going to – someone's going to inject into my well, data set? Sp- yeah, spam's some, a great example. Yeah.
1: So, right, uh, uh, spammers try and get around, let's say, Gmail spam filters aggressively, yeah. right?
0: So I will – so we're both spammers. Yeah. Like we're both bad. I will send a spam email to you, and then you'll respond, oh, this is a wonderful email. Yep. I'm going to mark it as, as yeah. great. I mean, more yeah. or less, that's the idea. Okay. So how would you mitigate that, yeah, <laughs> or how would you how a, would you get started? Obviously, this is a big project. But.
1: Well, the first step is to understand how to to perform the attacks, yeah. and then how to think about um, monitoring the you know sort of data you're seeing from the real world to understand if there's intentional drift. Because That's you know, sort of, all of fun,
0: yeah. Drift that's that's fun uh the fun part is like okay if we're if we're attackers how would we do it like yeah that's, so part uh, of the trick yeah. of this
1: would be to not get in trouble while you're actually building the well the hopefully system. you
0: could j- try to attack your own system and try to yeah, yeah. learn that and there's a good but, yes. way to do this yeah okay uh it's like the cops trying to think like the criminal exactly um all right very cool all right so um we're winding down we're about out of time um do you have any last thoughts about any of these issues and tell the audience, you know, uh, where they can go to learn out more, learn more about your lab and, and you and <laughs> any links that you want to that you, you, you want to put out there?
1: Well, thank you, Max. And congratulations again on 60 episodes. Yeah, that thank is you. A, that is a notable number. Yeah. Um, so just to wrap up, if you've made it this far, I really appreciate your attention. And if you're curious about what we're up to at Clutter of Fast Forward Labs, you can go to blog.fastforwardlabs.com. Uh, you can take a look at what we're up to on Twitter. I'm H. Meeson on Twitter, and usually linking to pretty random things over there. Um, and if you want to check out the book on data ethics, it's on Amazon. If you search for me, um, you will find it there. It's free. Um,
0: All right. Yeah. Great. All of that will be linked on localmaxradio.com slash 60. Hillary, thanks for coming on the show.
1: Thank you so much. This was a lot of fun.
0: That's the show. Remember to check out the website at localmaxradio.com. If you want to contact me, the host, or ask a question that I can answer on the show, send an email to localmaxradio at gmail.com. The show is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and more. If you want to keep up remember to subscribe to the local maximum on one of these platforms and to follow my Twitter account at Max Sklar. have a great week
1: It'll feel the power and she
0: said, I don't care what you say
1: you're gonna see
0: me shine.